0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of
1: 94.9 CHRW. Okay, that's enough. We get it, you're crying. She just laughed at me and called me gross. Yeah, did you hear your speech? Come on, let's go back. No. No, I'm not going back. Come on. Just, Just leave me alone. Running?
2: Uh everything okay here?
1: It's okay. I'm his teacher. Oh, okay. Take your time. She's never gonna like me, is she? Are we still on this? She's my everything. Okay, here's the deal, man. I cannot keep sugarcoating this for you. This girl is never gonna be interested in you. Never. You clearly have a rich interior life with the poems and the whatever, but she wants a guy like Ian, what's-his-face? Ian Mendelbaum, the rapper? He's an idiot! But she doesn't care. She likes him because he's hot and popular, dude. You... are sensitive. Yes, thank you. It's not a compliment. No. You have some rough road ahead of you. Seventh grade is not your moment. Yeah, eighth grade will be better. Yeah, probably not. Thinking college. That's your window. Be ready.
0: Good morning, London. It is Thursday, January 23rd, 2014. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM.
3: And we'll be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. It's Just
0: Right.
1: Fade into colour, colour to black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be alright.
0: And 519-661-3600 is always a number you can call to reach us live here on our show today. And if you're not live, but uh, (laughs) deadly, (laughs) write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Today on the show, I'm going to be proposing a taxing proposition, Robert, at the end of the show, uh, based on the conversation we almost started on the air yesterday, for which neither of us were really prepared, because it came up in the middle of another conversation. And uh, we both sort of agreed that the whole issue of taxation, as we were talking about, it was all a semantic argument. Well, I'm coming back today with an anti-semantic argument on that. And... uh, You know, it left some questions open that I had to have answered, and I got the answers. I'm really amazed and surprised by the answer. Now, in the first half of the show, we're going to be talking about how low sales taxes federally can cover everything in the Canadian budget. Is that what you're going to say?
3: Yeah, I've done uh, done my homework, and uh, you'd be surprised at how little a proper government can be run by. Interesting, and... And for our opening segment of the show, which
0: relates to our opener of the show today,' we're going to talk about syndromes. Does, does society
3: have a syndrome about syndromes? I think that we should d- d- invent a term for the syndrome or the group of behaviors that teachers, trustees, board officials, superintendents exhibit when presented with problems because quite frankly it's it's getting to the absurd in this town this past week uh, anybody in 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 london was probably made aware by talk show host andy udman over on cjbk uh, who's been featuring the travails of a little girl and her mother combating the lack of response by the thames valley district school board to their allegations of bullying by a young boy apparently the boy has been taunting the girl calling her names like fatso circling her in the schoolyard bumping into her and getting in her way the harassment has not let up and the educators refuse to do anything about the unwelcome behavior now when I first describe this behavior to my my wife she says he probably likes her that was my first reaction and you know something there's something about that particular behavior that is so familiar to me as well you know that was a common sort of behavior back then but nevertheless let's not belittle the fact that it's unwelcomed behavior it is stressing out the girl she doesn't want to attend school and I don't blame her if this this consistent kind of harassment continues it has to stop now in desperation the the parent of the little girl refuses to let her go to school until the issue is resolved I don't blame her, to tell you the truth. Now, in meetings with teachers, principals, board officials, the parent was basically told to suck it up, to use Andy's words. It was even suggested, you know, get this, even suggested that they ask the boy to call her a different slur, like perhaps tall girl, because she's a tall girl. <laughs> you know, exchange one uh, bodily slur for another one. That, that might help. No. Of course, the parent would have nothing of it. Uh, the reason for the refusal to discipline the child apparently stems from him being diagnosed with Asperger Syndrome. And now I would like to add something to the conversation based on my personal observations while I was a trustee on both the London Board of Education and the Thames Valley District School Board. In 2000, teachers were given a circular entitled What is Asperger Syndrome? which was also distributed to the trustees. I think I was the only one to take interest in any of those circulars, uh, mainly because I have a, a degree in psychology, and I'm always interested in politics and education and psychology. But this one was written by, let me see here, Dr. Sally Christensen, psychologist. And Asperger's, having read that article and know a little bit about it, is not what one would properly classify as a disease which seems to be how the board representatives are describing it, using that word, a disease. Asperger's is a syndrome, meaning it is a loose collection of behavioral traits. Most, if not all of these traits, happen to be exhibited by everyone at some point in time, believe it or not. the But the fictional character, Sheldon Cooper from the Big Bang Theory, has been described by some as being the poster boy for Asperger's. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's difficult. He has difficulty understanding things like sarcasm, um, that's a running joke on the show. He's highly intelligent, and um, he stresses out at the slightest change in routine. These are all symptoms of Asperger syndrome, amongst others. Now, the following people may be said to be candidates for being described as having Asperger syndrome. Uh, the shy loner who doesn't make friends easily. The girl who feels awkward about her body and doesn't want to participate in gym class. The boy who fixate on one particular area of interest to the exclusion of others. The child who finds it difficult to adjust changes in routine the child who has trouble communicating effectively not knowing for example when to enter a conversation or to take visual cues as to the attentiveness of the listener it's incorrect for teachers to suggest that a child or adult is suffering quote-unquote from A.S. simply because they exhibit such behavioral characteristics many of which are quite normal in a lot of people and behaviors which most people either grow out of or adapt to or are perfectly comfortable with. And it is, it's who they are as individuals. Now, if you were to ask this fictional character of Sheldon Cooper to change his ways and his behavior, he's probably quite comfortable in his skin and his awkwardness in social situations. And uh, that's just the way he is. It's not a disease. He's not suffering. There's no need for medication or anything like that. It's my belief that Asperger syndrome has become yet another disease to describe a misbehaving child and give teachers an excuse not to discipline bad behavior. We've seen it before with ADD and ADHD. And it's been recently coming out that boards, of course, and doctors are misusing that diagnosis and basically saying that any child, especially boys, by the way, um, who are hyperactive, who are rambunctious, who who have a lot of energy, oh, suffering from ADHD, here, take these uh, stimulants know, you know, and that'll calm them down.
0: You know, it seems that a lot of these symptoms, quote-unquote symptoms, that you've described are things we all experience to some degree yes. in our own lives. I yes. mean, I like to have regularity and habit and things like that, too. And when it's disturbed, would not the syndrome or the negative effects of it occur at a point when the habit becomes destructive to your own well-being, in a way.
3: Yes, Uh, I think that's um, what the um, original author of Asperger's Syndrome, Hans Asperger, uh, from Vienna, I think think he Mm. developed it in 1944. Um, He was trying to put into a word, or basically a syndrome, uh, the behaviors that he saw in some of his um, patients. And he gathered those commonalities and put them together and said this is Asperger's syndrome. You know who else could have been described as having Asperger's syndrome? Mm. Seven of
0: nine Mm. on... Yes. Because of her... Borg. No, when she was trying to to integrate socially. And when she first tried to sit in on a conversation, right, and they would ask her, you know, everybody would be sharing something and then she'd have a Borg experience to share and they'd all sit there looking kind of alienated, pardon the pun. Yes. And uh, you know, she seemed so out of place. She always felt like you know almost she was the misfit you know and And it wasn't caused by anything to do with her
3: mental abilities or anything like that it was not an organic problem and we can't have misfits in the public education system or in society misfits are out individuality is out we all must conform or assimilate into this one ideal of what it is to be a proper person, and anybody exhibiting any of the so called traits of Asperger's syndrome is singled out as having this disease. Um, hmm. At least that's my opinion, anyway. So now it's been my experience at the board that they go to great lengths to shirk their responsibility to provide a disciplined, orderly environment for the children in their care. Labeling a bully as having A.S. and thereby suggesting he be treated differently than any other bully is just another example of this cowardice to discipline inappropriate behavior. I've seen it for a long time. Bullying itself is not a characteristic trait, by the way, of A.S., although inappropriate behavior is, but it's quickly corrected. It's not the reason the child is acting out, and his diagnosis of having AS should not play any part in the board's responsibility correct to correct the child for his behavior. The child's actions should have been dealt with early and effectively with, for example, timeouts, extra work, staying after school, a uh, pr- proper understanding of how inappropriate his behavior is, or other such punishments, Regarding, regardless of his having Asperger's syndrome. At the very least, he should have been the subject of increased supervision around the, the bullied girl. I've, prob- I've probably been in every public school in this city and have often found children in the corridors throughout the day, some running and yelling and playing while classes are going on and others are trying to learn. Supervision is virtually non-existent and it appears that students have free reign to do whatever they want. Oddly enough, there are times when such behavior, and disruptive as it is, is occurring while under supervision. I've seen it. This is a far cry from the schooling that I went through. I don't know about you, Bob, but I went to the Catholic system in Newfoundland, and there was order and discipline and rules to be obeyed. Now, unfortunately, we sometimes also had corporal punishment, which I'm glad we no longer to use. To
0: the opposite extreme, yes. Yeah,
3: that's, that's and, the point. Sometimes you don't want to come
0: across sounding like some kind of old fogey. No, know? <laughs> and I'm not.
3: I'm just saying that the structure has to be there. I agree. it has to be maintained and not only that kids crave, they crave
0: it crave it they want it
3: they want structure they want rules they want to know the limits within which they can learn or behave and we've lost that this is not to say how teachers should teach other than to say that they should create an environment where teachers, can teach and students can learn. Now, while some may disagree with me on this, here's another thing that's lacking the public school system. It's diminishing role of the male authority figure. Now, just as some students benefit from experiencing a strong female role model, some benefit from a strong male role model. In 1997, while I was a trustee, the London Board made a decision to have only female vice principals. When I was made aware of this policy, I went public with that information. This was a deliberate attempt, in my opinion, to swing the pendulum from all male supervisory roles that we had at the time. Not all, by the way, there were, there was one we've had uh, in the past. But to s- have all female vice principals would mean that over time there would be only all female principals since they're chosen from the VP pool. Well, that and right? then mm-hmm. all female superintendents were chosen from the principal pool. The intent of the board at the time was a systematic emasculation of education, robbing young boys and girls of the positive role model of men. It remains my opinion to this day that such policies are detrimental to maintaining order in a school, most especially for some boys who are more readily able to look up to a male teacher than a female teacher. Now, in the next six years, while I was a trustee, not one student was expelled in six years. Even students who cause bodily harm or were in a knife fight were welcomed back into the system after a short suspension. In my years on the board not one student failed. I asked the director specifically that question in public. How many students have failed in this system? The answer was none. There was no incentive to work or to learn as a student. You should always progress with your class regardless of what you did, what you learned. And that's why we came out with the statement, schools still failing our children. Yes. I don't believe these conditions have changed and may have only gotten worse by the way. The rot is so extensive in the system that I see no hope for most parents but to remove their children from the public system
0: something i hear you saying
3: that almost oh, yeah. every time you talk it's about public so important public education yeah something i learned while on the board was that trustees by the way do fear a parent who switches from the public to the catholic system by the way there were some trustees who actually hated the catholic system with a passion and wanted it abolished there should be one system for all one set of standards for all one group of behavior for all so when you come out there and say, I'm taking my kid out and I'm going to put the money into the Catholic system, boy, they listen. At least some of them do. And while it would, from, from you or my perspective, Bob, it would be preferential for a parent to be able to take their money out of the public system and direct their education taxes to the school of their choice, no matter what system it is, even if it's a private school, or to keep the money t- to help them with expenses of homeschooling, their only option today is to switch their funding to the Catholic system. And I believe the public system is so harmful to children that just like any bully, it must be punished for its bad behavior. So we're going to take a little break now from this topic and have a smile as we listen to Sheldon Cooper dealing with the barber. I'm
2: just going to run to the store and get a few things. I'll pick you up when you're done. Okay. I I like it a little better when you stay, but all right. (laughs) Hey, Sheldon. Hello. I'm here for my haircut with Mr. D'Onofrio. I'm sorry. Uncle Tony's in the hospital. He's pretty sick. Oh, dear. Mr. D'Onofrio's in the hospital. Why do these things always happen to me? <laughs> I could cut it for you. You're not Mr. D'Onofrio. I get my haircut by Mr. D'Onofrio. Do you believe this guy?
1: <laughs>
2: Excuse us for a second. Sheldon, it's okay. He can do it. He's a barber. He's not a barber. He's the nephew. (laughs) He's an example of the kind of nepotism that runs rampant in the barbering industry. (laughs) And besides, Mr. D'Onofrio knows exactly how I like my hair done because he has all my haircut records from my barber in Texas. What are you talking about? When I first moved here, I was nervous about finding a new barber, so my mother had all my haircut records sent here to Mr. (laughs) D'Onofrio. There's no such thing as haircut records. Yes, there are. Have you ever seen them? No, but my mother assured me they were sent here, and I'll bet you dollars to donuts that this one doesn't have them. Uh, excuse me, do you have access to my haircut records? You what? To paraphrase T.S. Eliot, this is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but with a nephew. Sheldon, you're a grown man. He's a professional and your haircut is number three on that poster from 1946. <laughs> just sit down and let him do it. Fine, but if I come out of this looking like a dork, it's on you.
1: <laughs>
2: <sighs> so my kid said the funniest thing today. Nope. When you tell this story later, the word we usually use is quirky.
1: You know how you're always trying to learn about sarcasm? No. No. I
2: was being sarcastic. <laughs> Oh, good for you! So all you have to do here is say you're sorry to Leonard, but say it sarcastically. Of course, he will hear it as an attempt to mend fences, as opposed to the withering condemnation you and I will know it to be. Yeah, yeah, that was my plan. All right, come on, go. By the way, thank you for the delicious cocoa. Oh, you're welcome. Well, I'm getting good at this.
3: That's, uh, that's one of my favorite shows, The Big Bang Theory. See, see, Robert, that's one of those white lies we were talking about last week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, now for something completely different, off-topic here. How oh, much... On topic. Oh, on this topic, <laughs> off that topic. How much would a proper federal government cost if... It was relegated to those uh, duties that we have so often mentioned on this show, basically protecting persons' life, liberty, and property. If you go back to show 161, you can check that out on the archive, org. On July 22, 2010, I broke down, broke down the Ontario budget to determine how much it would cost to run a proper provincial government. Um, that is, again, one whose sole purpose was the protection of individual rights of its citizens. I stripped away all of the ministries and departments not essential to that task and concluded that a sales tax of only 2% would generate enough revenue, revenue sorry to fund only those ministries necessary for good government. Good government being defined by us. Mm-hmm. No other tax or revenue stream was necessary. None. Just a 2% sales tax applied to the same goods and services the current 8% sales tax applies to today. Today, I'm going to repeat that exercise for the federal government. Now, caveat here, these are gross calculations. Mind you, I take them right from the government's websites, but they are still gross, and they certainly need some fine-tuning. But, however, with that in mind, the total revenues for the Canadian government came to $271.4 billion in 2011 and 12. By far, the single largest percentage of expenditures for the federal government was in transfer payments. Now, we hear that term all the time, transfer payments. A total of $159.7 billion, in fact, in wealth is redistributed by our conservative government and previous governments in schemes such as these transfer payments. Old-age security, guaranteed income supplement, allowances for spouses, employment insurance benefits, goods and service tax credits. That, by the way, is $3.9 billion. This is all basically wealth redistribution. Wealth redistribution and um, not a proper function of you know, government.
0: You say we hear these ter- this word transfer payments all the time. You know where, when I first heard it where? in my life? I was standing on the podium as a federal candidate <laughs> in 1979, and up comes this topic, transfer payments. Mm-hmm. And then uh, one of the candidates beside me explained it to me. My jaw dropped. I said, how does a country stay stay together with something like <laughs> that? We're not going survive,
3: to survive if that's how the country's run. <laughs> yeah, you were pretty astute, even back then, Bob. Uh, to continue on with transfer payments, there's even more than ones I just mentioned. Transfers to other levels of government totaling $56.8 billion, or 21 cents on each tax dollar spent. These transfers apparently help fund health care, post-secondary education, and other programs, which, by the way, in our Constitution, are not functions of a federal government. So paying for them shouldn't be either. Equalization and territorial formula financing programs and the gas tax transfers to cities and communities, $18.1 billion. 7.7 billion in transfers for First Nations and Aboriginal peoples. 1.7 billion in assistance to farmers and other food producers. 4.9 billion in foreign aid and other international assistance. So like like we have no problems here. Let's just give our money away. 7.5 billion in support for research and development infrastructure, regional development and assistances to businesses. Crown corporations, and by the way, those that's all the transfer payments I got here. Now crown crown corporations, not one of which by the way, may be considered to be essential to a proper government. I looked at them all. They're all superfluous. 8.2 billion dollars. Of the more essential expenditures, now these are the ones I would agree with, are national defense costing 22.8 billion, public safety including the RCMP, federal prison system, border traffic and security operations 9.4 billion, Canada Revenue Agency 7.9 7.9 billion. Now, although a revenue agency would be f- part of a proper government, I mean, they've got to have an agency to collect uh, uh, their funding. With the elimination of most taxes, like personal and corporate income taxes that I'll get onto later, that cost, I think, will be reduced to a fraction of what is today. So I'm going to peg Especially it at half, half a billion dollars. This is dollars. going to fit so well with what I have to say oh, in good. the second half. The criminal justice system costs about 5.5 billion. Parliament itself, which is an institution that has to exist and uh, should exist, salaries and benefits for MPs, senators, staff, and spending on facilities and services, $565 million. There's probably a few others as well. But I'll le- and, uh, By the way, I'll leave out the public debt out of the equation, but the interest charges on the debt are about $31 billion a year. Not a, a small sum, but I figure by the time we get to a proper government, the debt will be gone anyway. Wishful thinking, I know. Not really. We've had debt-free governments until until Pierre
0: Trudeau, didn't we? Essentially, we had um, deficits occasionally. No,
3: I don't. Th- I don't know that that's true. Is it?
0: I don't think the government began an uh, accumulated debt until
3: until hmm. the Trudeau years. Yeah, so it's something that we can easily get out. Oh, of, yeah. Hopefully, the total expenditures for the functioning of a proper government come to about thirty-nine billion dollars when I add those things up. Now let's add another billion, just to cover anything I may have missed, for a nice round figure: of forty billion dollars for a federal Canadian government. Now, the GST brings in approximately $6 billion per each percentage. So a federal sales tax of about 6.7% would pay for everything a proper government would require to protect our individual rights. The courts, the police, prisons, parliament, national defense, a revenue agency, foreign affairs departments, things like that. We could do away with every other tax, duty, tariff, and still maintain the same relatively peaceful country we have today, but where the government has been separated from the economy as it should be. Gone is the personal income tax, which robs $120 billion from us each year, and is the single most intrusive burden on us, if you ask me. Imagine, imagine a paycheck where your gross is the same as your net. Wow. (laughs) Gone are all corporate income taxes. Just imagine the incentive for businesses in other countries to move to Canada if there were no taxes whatsoever on their profits. Canada would be the place to set up business for all the world. What most people don't
0: realize is that income tax is a very, very recent development in human history.
3: Oh, yeah, 1917 here, isn't it? 1936 in province. but, But still... Before that,
0: everything was done through some sort of excise or sales tax. Yes, act.
3: tariffs and excise A- taxes, and that
0: was the only, and that's the only long term proper way to do things too.
3: Yeah as
0: I rediscovered.
3: (laughs) Yes, and I think uh, I'll get to the end of this where I suggest something along the same lines. Um, Gone are all the other taxes, such as non-resident withholding taxes, custom import duties, energy taxes, excise taxes, duties on alcohol and tobacco. Some of those we may actually want to bring back in, but for my little experiment here, I'm just going to focus on a sales tax. What percentage should a sales tax be, uh, including the elimination of every other single tax? Gone You're are all the employment insurance premiums. This is federal, right? Federal Sorry. only, yes. Yeah, not, not provincial. No, provincial we did uh, back yeah. in 2010. Remember, it came out to 2%. Mm-hmm. 2%. No other taxes, just 2% sale tax would fund a proper vi- provincial government. So, what we would be left with is a simple 6.7% tax on the same trax- transactions subject to the GST today. In Ontario, add the 2%, I mentioned before, and we'd be living with a proper government in a relatively peaceful society, at a cost of only 8.7% harmonized sales tax, 4.3% less than the 13% we pay today. Now, on last week's show, Bob and I, as you alluded to before, had a bit of a debate over the morality of a proper government imposing any force, any tax, or compulsion on its citizens. I say it's immoral, but consider for a moment... That the imposition is not on the consumer to pay a sales tax, but on the retailer to collect it. Mind you, it's still force and a compulsion. And I understand that you're going to get into that later. Yes, I'm going to support it, too. Okay, that's fine. I want to hear your argument. And like today, the retailer is actually given nominal compensation for the time it takes to collect and remit the tax. I know. I've done it. I've been in that position. I found the collections and remittance of PST and GST, and that was before the HST, and now the HST, to be a fairly actually, a fairly simple process. It's a one-page form. It's all, amount it's all collected, amount, amount remitted. Very simple.
0: And it's not your money. And so it, it should never even come up as an issue of your being able to
3: pay it. You should ever hold
0: it as trust. It's supposedly
3: trust. held in a separate bank account yep. in trust to be remitted later. That's yeah, correct, minus yes. your tax credits, of course. Now consider also that the consumer has a choice. If he finds the 8.7 percent tax too high, he can limit his consumption. Now it's a pretty small amount in daily purchases, and would only be a major consideration for large purchases like a car or a home where you might be thinking that the taxes are actually totaling up in the thousands. But again, you've got the choice. You don't have to spend it. Whereas when you make money in an income tax situation, it's gone. No choice. Consider also that a sales tax is applied to trade. Essentially to do business, and since it is the proper function of government, in my estimation, to protect our right to trade, such a tax is shared equally by all as payment for maintaining the order necessary to maintain an environment where we can conduct business in peace. So, in that way, it's, it's a rather just tax, if you can have a just tax if we lived in such a country I personally would not be objecting to such small amounts going toward the protection of my rights to tell you the truth but if we ever get to such a government I'd hope that we could develop a system of revenue generation which would not require an imposition or compulsion on retailers or businessmen to collect a sales tax and I'll leave that for another generation since we're so far removed from such a future I won't spend any more time debating that point it's only up to us today To demonstrate that our governments, and to our governments, and to ourselves, that a proper government and a peaceful and orderly society are reasonable and practical and can be accomplished. And it's a goal that I strive for and you strive for, Bob, uh, every day on this show and in our political uh well, arena.
0: all those questions you asked last week and just mentioned now, you know, they they bugged me like crazy after that conversation we had. <laughs>
3: it was only a short ten-second no, conversation. No, I know,
0: but, but you, you know, I hate having these epiphanies while we're on the air, mm. <laughs> you know, when we're talking about something else, and you're sitting there, hmm. It's too bad we were up against the clock, Yeah, too, no, no, that, get into that's,
3: that's always the issue. Yeah. So
0: uh, I made the time for, to, to answer a few of these questions today.
3: Well, I'm, and, I'm glad to hear, hear your arguments. I understand you've done a lot of research. And... Um,
0: Yes, and I found a surprising answer to the question, and that is that the question has been answered before. I'm not surprised. And quite the successfully. Theory. And we have to go back, like, <laughs> to 1215 to find the right answers. But in the meantime, we have to look at the situation we have now. Many of the answers are already sitting in, uh, in Canadian law, and we just don't know about them. So we're going to talk about that when we return from this break.
4: We're back. As part of my contract with America, I have enacted a middle-class tax cut. Starting today, you middle-income commoners will only have to pay 74% of your gross earnings to my government. A generous 2% decrease.
1: You just don't get who you're messing with, do you? Collector's the number two man at recall behind the chairman. That's how high internal security rates over there. I'm afraid of him. Are you? Collector's power doesn't stop with recall. He is backed by all the muscle consortium money can buy. The last guy from this office messed with a corporate head of security? not only lost his badge, he lost his job. Hey, last time I checked, we don't work for the consortium. Power works in mysterious ways, Hume. We are talking about a group of companies whose taxes pay for about, oh, 90% of our government. So tell me, how do I do my job if the IPC will not back me up? Do your job by being smart about it. We can take them down one piece at a time. Now, I told my superiors that you are a good detective. Please do not allow my faith in you to be misplaced.
0: Well, I hope I haven't misplaced anyone's faith in my detective work on this. But I guess the question is, who watches the watchers? You know, how can we trust our politicians not to overspend and keep government power on the up and up? That's a big question, isn't it? The problem of freedom, of justice, and of government financing, which seems to run counter to to those principles. Which is not correct, by the way. Now, last week on the show, Robert and I got into a little back and forth uh, on things we agreed and disagreed on, and Robert started off by suggesting there's no such thing as a legitimate tax. I know you you were really relying on that word, tax as opposed to a fee or something else and in the end we kind of agreed it was you know, we're really arguing about semantics when really that's not the case and that's one of the first things I think we have to get out of the way, my real argument I've reserved for the final quarter of the show but we need to have some definitions in place before we get into this and it's interesting, I went to the, um, a number of Dictionaries, actually, Webster's 20th century, just for the basic one on taxes. And then the Canadian Law Dictionary, which is about, um, you know, the, ta- the, the definitions as they exist in Canadian law. Now, of course, um, the General Dictionary defines a tax, it comes from the word French, or French from the French, rather, from the word uh, taxe to tax, and earlier from the Latin taxare, to appraise, to censure. And uh, it says, one, a tax is a compulsory payment of a percentage of income, property, value, sales, price, etc., for the support of government. A special assessment, as in a society or labor union, so it's not necessarily just for government. A heavy demand, a burden, a strain. That's how Isabel Patterson talked about taxation a lot in terms of energy. And a charge, as in a restaurant, etc., etc., And they also rated synonyms as assessment, contribution, custom, like contribution, that's not a tax to me, but they they call it that, don't they? Uh, Impost, duty, rate, tribute, toll. And that's tax as a noun. Tax as a verb originally came, uh, originally meant to uh, determine the value of, to assess something. And again, to require a person to pay a percentage of his income, etc., for the support of government. It's almost the same definitions, but in the active sense. Then I went to the Canadian Law Dictionary, and here's how it um, defined a tax. tax is an impost, a tribute, imposed upon a subject. It is a compulsory imposition by a competent authority on the subjects. There can be no option on the part of the taxpayer to pay or not to pay the tax. So, you were right about that, Robert. A tax is compulsory, absolutely. Otherwise, it wouldn't be called one, right? The essential elements of a tax are, one, it must be enforceable by law. Two, it must be imposed by a public body under legislative authority, and this is important, for a public purpose. Keep that one in mind. That's the big one. Three, the payment of it is compulsory. And I would add to that, which does not mean forced, and I'm going to reconcile those two words. Taxes to be distinguished from a fee or payable, or payable to a public official. To f- we talked about that last week. We sort of were, were, were confusing the two. They're not. Taxes are distinguished from a fee, which is payable to a public official to defray the cost of a direct service rendered, such as a fee payable to a land registrar upon the registration of a document. Such a fee is not levied for a public purpose and therefore is not a tax even if the fees received exceed the cost of maintaining the registration system.
3: I see. It's directed... It it is for a
0: direct purpose, not a public purpose. Robert, you wouldn't believe how important that is. Mm -hmm. It explains everything that's going wrong with our municipal government and everything. It's it's just stunning when you start thinking in those terms. Does it explain Rob Ford? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, His tax policies, maybe, but not his behavior. Um, Now, taxes, again, may be either direct or indirect. A direct tax is one payable by the very person who is intended to or desired to pay it. Income tax is an illustration of a direct tax. An indirect tax is a tax payable by a person who has the right to indemnify himself or collect the same from another. A sales tax on the sale of goods in retail is an illustration of an indirect tax. And then... um, There are other definitions we have to be... Now, here's the other important definition. Right, because this refers to the function of government, of course. Now, rights may be classified as primary and secondary. Remember, again, we're talking Canadian law here. Primary rights are those that are created without reference to rights already existing. And this class will be the right of every person of the community to life... There you go. Health
3: and liberty of action... Life, liberty,
0: also the right of ownership, of contract, of marriage, etc. So there you got it. Life, liberty, and property.
3: And then they threw in health there, which is a big Sorry, of no no of
0: it's, Sorry, I, there's, no comma, there's no comma there. I looked at it closely. It's not health, comma, and liberty of action. It's health and liberty of action. So the health of the action?
3: Yes. I see, know, not of the person? Not of the person. Okay. Very careful. You have to air a dot in a legal dictionary. <laughs> that's, that's very similar to when the Americans said to provide for the general, general welfare. General welfare. You got it. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it means completely different than what we think of today as that, welfare.
0: That's right. And um, then there are secondary rights. Um, and they are created or arise only for the purpose of protecting or enforcing primary rights. Thus, the right of a creditor through the courts to obtain judgment and levy execution against the debtor is a secondary right. Rights may al- also be classified as being either in, r- in rem or in personam. A right in rem, that's Latin I-N-R-E-M, is such a right that is good against the whole world. Such is a right that the owner of a property enjoys to exclude all others from the same. Remember when Paul McKeever was explaining to us that property rights were an exclusionary right?
3: Interesting, yeah.
0: And we all sort of said, "What do you mean? Yeah, you know, that's what he means, right there. That's what it means. You can exclude everybody. That's the that's the thing that makes something private. Is it the the, the nature of exclusion? It doesn't mean you can." disobey the law within your property, that's another issue. A right in personam is one that can be enforced only against a particular person on whom is a corresponding duty or liability. And again, they s- refer to a debtor, a creditor, and that kind of thing. Now, here's the interesting part. In its legal sense, the term right denotes the liberty, or privilege conferred or protected by law, of doing or abstaining from doing an act... Or the power of privilege enforced by law of compelling a specific person to do or abstain from a particular thing. It is that liberty, the infringement of which, entitles the possessor to a legal remedy or that power to compel compliance with the assistance of the state. In other words, you know, we always talk economics, transactions. What about you walking down the street and some guy hits you on the head? Just violence, right? Straight-out straight, straight out violence. Mm-hmm. He's infringed your right. He's infringed your liberty. Where do you yes. run? Who are you going to go to to help? To, to the police, of yeah, course. Well, well, yeah, but but if it's only a voluntary pay-for police, what do you do? You know, I've heard libertarians have this argument no, no, all no, the time. No, no,
3: no. You're jumping the uh, gun again. You've gone from no, no. establishing why we need a police force to saying that we can't have one because it's voluntary. No, no, I didn't it's say that. It's funded by a voluntary service. No, 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 you're
0: you're confusing the service of the police
3: with the authority of the law. Two different things. No, I'm not. Um, You're confusing the authority of the police with how it's funded, suggesting that how can you have a police service if it's uh, voluntarily uh, paid for?
0: You can, but that's not the nature of... uh, You're paying for something else. It's very careful. Let me get into this, because that comes into the final quarter, and I'm not going to be relying on me to say it. Other people have expressed it much better. But basically, what we're buying from government is freedom. Justice through the objective use of force. It is not a service. It is a condition necessary to have the freedom and the choice in the first place for for, for individual rights. In fact, to have a right means to be able to use force justly in the defense of one's life, liberty, and property. And, you know, force is not always coercion or unjust. The whole point of government is to arrive at the just use of force. Force is what is governed, explains Isabel Patterson, who sees taxation in a very real-world natural application in the sense of energy expenditure and consumption. So, we have to be careful not to confuse laissez-faire capitalism, where economic transactions are voluntary and free from government intervention, with laissez-faire government. I wouldn't confuse you. Where taxes are voluntary, and you can opt in or out, as you will, just by, you know, merely because you think you're buying some kind of government service. It doesn't,
3: it doesn't no. work that way. No, no. You, you should never look at the police, the national uh, defenses, or anything like that as being only for those who pay for them directly. They are not directly direct services. Correct. Correct. And I so, would agree so, with
0: you completely so what, on that. So what obligation does a citizen have to it? That's what we're going to get to. This is these questions have been solved. But, you know, you can't have a less fair capitalism un- unless under a laissez-faire government. Let's put it that way. You've got to have a government that's going to do something to make sure you have that free market. And, uh, you know, otherwise you'd have a contradiction in terms. So, and and again, it's wrong to say government should be run like a business in the sense of, uh, I think that's what's bringing governments down today. They're they're governments. They're they're not an opt-out situation like a business. A business is an opt-out situation. So, with that in mind, I think right now we're going to take a trip off to the 13th century, 1215 uh, specifically, where I don't know you remember the show My Favorite Martian. I, I do, do indeed. I know a lot of people don't know the show, so they should know that that Uncle Martin, the Martian, and this he has certain powers that we humans don't have, including making himself invisible, levitating items, and little things like that that are basically magic to us. It was a fun comedy show, but we'll always got into some very interesting uh, you know, history lessons like the one we're going to be get short, getting shortly but here Tim and Uncle Martin find themselves thrust into the past because Tim accidentally assumes that Uncle Martin's time machine is a simple clock and he attempts to adjust it to, correct, to the correct time of 12.15 instead of noon right? So suddenly the, both of them find themselves not at 12.15pm of the modern day but in 12.15 A.D. <laughs> the year of the Magna Carta and we'll be back right after this
4: are in the 13th century? Yes? You're kidding me. You're putting me on. Not at all. Holy Toledo. Well, don't just stand there. Do something. You'll fix your clock. Get us back. An excellent thought. <laughs> Only I'm afraid you can't resolve the breaking of time as easily as you can some broken eggs. Which, incidentally, you couldn't have scrambled any better than you did my CCTVS. <laughs> What in the name of Neptune are you yelling about? Well, take a look for yourself. The big guy's picking on the little one. If someone doesn't help him, he's a dead duck. Ham! Hey, Ham, hey, come back! If you hadn't shown when you did, I'd hate to think of where I'd be right now. Now, from the way his sword was about to come down on you, I'd say that part of you would be here and the other part of you would be over there somewhere. Why is it? I couldn't let Gargantua clobber the little fella. Hey, where'd he go? Well, at the speed with which he departed, I'd say he's somewhere near London by now. Unfortunately, if you hadn't interfered, he would have beaten off his attacker, completed his mission, and history would have been spared this disturbance. His mission? To deliver this. To the Archbishop of Canterbury, at Runnymede. Yikes. It's the Magna Carta. Mm-hmm. One of the most important instruments of constitutional English history. It guarantees the English people their rights, freedom of religion, and trial by a jury of their peers. But why were they fighting over it? If you recall your history, the English barons, led by the Archbishop of Canterbury, are demanding the signature of King John, who prefers that the Magna Carta didn't exist. Oh, I get it. And Junior Giant over here works for the king. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid it's up to us now to deliver it to the Archbishop. Or well, not only will the history of England be changed, but that of the whole world. You have fulfilled your mission well. Thank you, my Lord King. Now, all that is left is to do away with the Archbishop. Hmm? The Archbishop? Oh, nay, hey, nay, hey, hey. The lives of men mean naught to me, but. Uh, <laughs> The Rock of the heavens. But sire, he is the leader of the rebellious barons, the champion of freedom for the people. He must be rid of if we, I mean if your majesty, is to retain all the power so rightly his. (laughs) My dear, you're even a greater scoundrel than I, without a single redeeming virtue. (laughs) Thank you, Your Majesty. I've had an excellent tutor, Your Majesty. (laughs) After supper, I shall consult with my sorcerer and ensure that the omens are with us. Boy, if that's being born to the purple, I'd rather have viricose veins. Don't blame the entire royal family, Tim. Many a family tree needs trimming. One may be a tyrant but he's a superstitious man and I'm about to deliver him some bad news what about me just stay out here and keep out of trouble hmm <gasps> no wonder I am cursed they're trying to kill a sorcerer you have only one way to rid yourself of the curse your majesty sign the Magna Carta and all will be right in your reign but the Magna carta be destroyed not one in the hands of a sorcerer Tim your majesty Power yours. It will fall to the people. Basil! Basil! Come quickly! Come quickly! How dare you! Uh-oh. Please. Here comes that ho-ho-ho again. I'll leave it up to you to keep him occupied, Jim. I've got to make the king sign. Opportunity oh, knocks but once. Uncle That is an opportunity, to knocking. That's my knees. Your Majesty? Your Majesty, I beseech you, don't sign. Silence! Don't silence,
1: silence. silence Your Majesty! Someone. Oh, Your Majesty!
4: I have signed it. I have signed the Magna Carta.
1: Oh, Your Majesty,
0: right you let me call you, <laughs> I don't think it really happened that way. <laughs> Sounds you like think? somebody was getting a spanking. Oh, oh that, was, that was Tim trying to have a sword fight in the background. He couldn't <laughs> lift the sword. It was so heavy, it kept falling on the oh, ground. Oh, I can hear where
3: these cracks and yeah. <laughs> this woman saying, stop it, stop it.
0: <laughs> yeah. In her book, The God of the Machine, Isabel Patterson noted that the Magna Carta was written or drafted by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langton, And the names which lead all the rest in the preamble are those of the dignitaries of the church, being the archbishops of Canterbury and Dublin, seven bishops, the master of Templars, and the papal legate, while the first clause exacts exacts that the English church shall be free, including freedom of elections to clerical offices. This was to prevent the king from making appointments to abbeys and benefices, uh, through which he could siphon off the revenues of the church. Obviously, he had been doing so. Patterson points to the fact that science itself, quote, arose from political conditions. The application of science to production requires assured possession of private property, free labor, that means free market labor, not from free free labor, (laughs) um, and time enough to return benefits for the effort and capital expended. Science is the rule of reason. Time and distance are the two factors which necessitate formal government. It's important to know that. Now, this is interesting, too. Physics has no name for the exact function which is delegated to government. Government is an end appliance and a dead end in respect of the energy it uses, which is wholly calculable. However, the actions of a human being depend on what he thinks, a non-measurable factor. He has a faculty for which no equivalent is found in the process of inanimate nature. He is self-starting, and he can inhibit himself. We've discussed this in the past before. Mm-hmm. When a civilized man builds a house, he must therefore impose restraints on himself for objective distant in time and needing to be directed through space. He lives in the past and future as well as the present. His initiative will be wasted unless he also inhibits himself, and further, he must be able to count upon others who participate in the exchange to observe like long-term Inhibitions, or <laughs> inhibitions this is why the s- savages have no occasion for formal government while it is necessary for civilization for a civilized economy which consists of production and exchanges in a sequence extending through time and space there must be an agency to witness long term contracts see that they are fulfilled in case of default and that is what government does and all it can do in the economy it is a prohibitory and, exp- and expropriative agency And in that sense, government's a marginal requirement, necessary only insofar as the individual inhibitory faculty is not exercised according to agreement and natural right. Beyond that, government is an enthronement of paralysis and death. Now I move on to a fascinating book that I've also quoted before, Fight, Flight, and Fraud, by Charles Adams, The Story of Taxation. Very interesting what he says about the Magna Carta, and here lies the answer. One of the most important and overlooked chapters in the Magna Carta is a provision for merchants creating free trade in an era of crippling tolls and duties. Merchants were never sure of their right of free passage in and out of England, and especially free passage within the country. Merchants were often taxed relentlessly by local authorities and by the king's taxmen as well. Magna Carta protected trade from internal tolls and duties and prohibited excessive tolls at the seaports. Quote, let all merchants have safety and security to go out of England, to come into England, and to remain in and go about through England, as well as by land as by water, for the purpose of buying and selling, without payment of any evil or unjust tolls. Imagine they use that word, right? On payment of the ancient and just customs. The United States and Canadian constitutions adopt this principle of internal free trade. Commerce moving within the nation cannot be taxed. Freedom to travel in and out of the country cannot be curtailed. We've, we've, we've drifted a bit from that, but still. The Russians find it difficult to understand why the West emphasizes this basic human right. Magna Carta is the source. When the king was asked for aid, all aids were for war. The Great Council was concerned with two things. Was there a real need? If so, was the request reasonable? For a war to be necessary, it had to be just it had to be defensive england was a christian nation and the shedding of human blood required justification an offensive was illegal taxes for such a war would be improper in short a lawful tax requires a just expenditure important and i should add not only that is offensive war illegal it's also offensive <laughs> <laughs> now There's an absolutely fascinating history in this chapter of the book that details all the times that the king was outrightly refused the funds and and aids he requested. Just a list. I couldn't go through them all. But the author concludes, The debate and bargain for taxes between king and his great council eventually gave birth to parliamentary government. The King needed revenue but revenue depended on the reasonableness of the King's request. Even then Parliament learned to grant taxes in return for favors from the King. Tax monies had to be bargained for and this bargaining process became the essence of politics. Liberties and rights were granted by the King in return for money. To ensure a continuation of rights and benefits from the King, Parliament realized in the beginning that taxation should only be granted for short periods rarely for more than a year can you imagine every tax expiring in a year the rights of Englishmen would be secure as long as the king was denied the power to tax permanently each year the process of debate and bargain for taxes would repeat itself English government after Magna Carta was based on the separation of powers but not the separation of powers that the Americans espouse so vociferously here's the separation and this is the clincher the king could spend, but not tax. Parliament could could tax, but not spend. Totally separate functions, never to touch each other. As long as the power to tax and the power to spend were separated, the rights of Englishmen would live forever, especially the right to be free from oppressive taxation. Today, the principle of the separation of powers means something quite different. Our current runaway taxation is the natural consequence of our abandoning that ancient English practice. We live in a pre-Magna Carta world in which we, like the subjects of King John, can be, quote, pilleth with taxes and tollages unto the bare bones, end quote. And that, in a nutshell, is how history was rewritten. From the wisdom of Magna Carta and parliamentary constitutional monarchy to the whimdom of a so-called democracy that has fallen into the despotism of majority rule. That's where we're at today, Robert. Fascinating discoveries, Bob. The citizens and voters, by playing both king and subject, at the same time will eventually deprive themselves of any legitimacy of either status. And we're doing it to ourselves. A government by the people, which buys the people Ah. right no separation of tax and spend and no hope for a happy ending and that's the crux of the whole issue and i got so many other things here What, what are one of the basic quick reasons why a sales tax is so preferable it's a consumption tax not a production or ownership tax it's an end load it's an indirect tax it's visible transparent It's anonymous. No need to have your personal privacy violated. That's what I like. Having to report is, to me, is like having to report income tax is like having to report your favorite sex position or something. That's It's it's personal, you know? It's debtless. You never accrue a tax debt. Taxes are always paid. No forms or paperwork to fill out. No government or police will ever be after you for tax arrears. The rich still pay more and the poor still pay less. No one's exempt from the tax. Everyone in the jurisdiction pays, not just income and property owners. A sales tax, though compulsory, is attached to a voluntary transaction just as I said yeah. not by that Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I <laughs> hope you did and that's basically the message today. we've got to separate the spending power from the, the taxing, taxing power. power and everybody thinks we operate under that we don't we abandon that principle and therein lies the secret of how good government has to be financed Excellent essentially problem. Excellent problem. And I think when we tie all those pieces together we can have a great country I agree. That's it for this week. Let's go for another week and join us again next week as we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, you know what to do and we're going to be back here for a continuation of this. See ya.
1: Fade into color Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will
4: be alright We made it, Uncle Martin. We made it! We did. But I'm afraid the CCTBS didn't. It's completely melted away. I'm sorry, Uncle Martin. It's all my fault. I got you in this mess in the first place. Now you almost busted up history. Now listen, if you hadn't written a new Magna Carta... Don't berate yourself, Tim. Eventually, I'll build another CCTBS. And besides, I enjoyed the little job I did. As a brilliant scholar once said, anyone can make history. It takes a great man to rewrite it. Whose quote is that? Mine. I often quote myself, it usually adds something to the conversation. (laughs)